We did not come here as enemies. We came only with friendly intentions to talk, to ask your aid. Our aid? Yes. Your aid for the whole universe. But your governments of Earth refused even to accept our existence. Even though you've seen us, heard our messages, you still refuse to accept us. Why is it so important that you want to contact the governments of our Earth? Because of death. Because all you of Earth are idiots. Abby who? Abby normal. Can your heart stand the shocking facts? Broadcasting from the backwoods of Fayette County, Pennsylvania, and promoting better living through bad movies, Clockwork Cardiac Productions presents Abnormal State Theater. Present the theater curator and host of these broadcasts, Dr. R.D. Gearhart. Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of Abnormal State Theater, where we encourage better living through bad movies. Our aim here uh, at this podcast is to celebrate and discuss and evaluate the therapeutic value of bizarre and obscure films, both past and present, as an antidote to the mass-produced mediocrities so common in today's theaters. So if bloated blockbusters leave you feeling blasé, you've come to the right place. My name is Dr. R.D. Gearhart, and I'm here to help. Each episode, I will step into the screening chamber and subject myself to the featured film so you don't have to. Now, sometimes it might be a movie I've seen already, um, and sometimes I will have seen it for the first time just for the purposes of this podcast. Uh, In either case, I will return and share my thoughts as to whether or not the film was entertaining and why. And it doesn't have to be entertaining in the way its makers intended. In point of fact, here at Abnormal State Theater, we prefer our movies to entertain in ways their makers never intended. So, before we get into this episode's film, uh, we have a brief message, and I will be right back with you. What's puzzling you, Ethelbert? One of those quizzes, and it says here, uh, what are these men famous for? Sidney Porter, Samuel Clemens, Charles Dodgson. Well, they're all great authors. Well, how come I never heard of them? Well, you would if they printed their pen names. They're O. Henry, Mark Twain, and Lewis Carroll. Well, I'll be. Those names are famous. Everybody knows them. Mm -hmm. Like everybody knows Anchor Hawking, the most famous name in glass. Ah, yes, Anchor Hawking. I chose that commercial as a little bit of a shout-out to uh, to this area. The... uh, Anchor Hawking Company had a plant um, here in Fayette County, and I knew quite a few people who were employed by it, but uh, then uh, one day it went away. It was bought up by some company in Mexico, and the rest is history, as they say. 
And much in the same way that the movie that we're going to be discussing today is history. The magnum opus of director Edward D. Woods Jr., Plan 9 from Outer Space, filmed in 1956 and released in 1959. So we'll get into um, a little bit here about the director. Uh, Ed Wood, although he produced a number of films and wrote a number of novels and um, other media, He's best known for three films that he made in the 1950s. Uh, Glen or Glenda in 1953, Bride of the Monster in 1955, and then the one we'll be talking about today, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Now, Ed Wood had a lot of things. He had drive, he had spunk. One thing that he didn't have, however, was talent. So his movies never made any money. Um, he pretty much dwelt on the fringes of Hollywood, and he died in obscurity in 1978. It was only after his death that his films really gained popularity. The uh, Medved brothers, Harry and Michael Medved, um, early film critics and proponents of B-movies, wrote a film called, wrote a book that is called The Golden Turkey Awards, and in this book they polled a number of uh, movies or movie audiences to see what they considered the worst director and worst film of all time were. And Plan 9 from Outer Space and Ed Wood both topped their respective categories. Now, I personally disagree with this evaluation uh, for reasons that we'll get into a little bit later on. But um, suffice it to say that Ed Wood is pretty much known as the Orson Welles of bad films. A matter of fact, three of his films were featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Um, Bride of the Monster, um, The Sinister Urge, made in 1960, and uh, The Violent Years from 1956, although he didn't direct that film, he just wrote it. Now we'll get into a little bit more information about the... Uh, the making of the movie and also the uh, the casting of it. The biggest name in this film would be Bela Lugosi, of course. Um, the famous and first movie Dracula, or the most successful, you might say. Lugosi had fallen on hard times when Ed Wood met him, and uh, Wood used him in a number of his films. And he had shot some footage of Bella in his Dracula cape for no reason in particular. Some historians claim that it was for a project called The Ghoul Goes West, but in any case, when Bela Lugosi died, Ed Wood had this footage of him, so he decided to build a film around it. Now, in order to get funding for this film, he approached, of all people, a Baptist church group that wanted to use the profits from this film to make movies based on the Bible. And they objected to the original title of the film, uh, Grave Robbers from Outer Space, and forced the change to the title that we know of now as Plan 9 from Outer Space. And essentially, uh, the Grave Robbers from Outer Space is pretty much the story. Basically, it's alien invaders that um, reanimate the dead to serve as an invading army to prevent mankind from basically destroying themselves and the rest of the universe. You're not really going to get much of a movie summary from me in these. 
In any case, they provided the funding, and two of the church members, Edward Reynolds and Hugh Thomas, ended up playing gravediggers in the film. Other cast members, um, and I'm not really covering these in any particular order, um, Tor Johnson, who played Inspector Daniel Clay, a uh, massive mountain of a man, a former pro wrestler known as the Super Swedish Angel. He's also seen in The Bride of the Monster and uh, other such movies as The Unearthly with John Carradine, uh, The Beast of Yucca Flats made by uh, Coleman Francis, uh, another film called Behind Locked Doors, also known as The Human Gorilla, where he played an ex-wrestler. Typically, he was typecast as a mute or near-mute henchman. This role as a police inspector actually gave him dialogue, which didn't really turn out too well. His son, Carl Johnson, was an LAPD officer, so that's the way that they were able to secure police cars and uniforms for the film. Then there was Vampira, also known as Mela Nurmi, basically the prototype for Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and she actually tried to sue uh, actress Cassandra Peterson for copying her character it didn't have any success. But in any case, Vampira was the first um, of her kind whenever it came to hosting horror movies on TV, the predecessor of such hosts as Goulardi and Chili Billy and uh, what have you. She was also actually used in 1956 as a model for Maleficent in Disney's Sleeping Beauty. So there's a little bit of a uh, Disney connection there as well, and if you really wanted to make a stretch, uh, she and Angelina Jolie have something in common. Next uh, actor here, uh, Gregory Walcott, who plays the movie's de facto hero, um, airline pilot and ex-marine Jeff Trent. Uh, Gregory Walcott, who passed away here just in the past few months, uh, was um, a legitimate actor who actually had quite a good body of work. Um, he was a veteran of television. He played in such shows as Maverick, Perry Mason, Bonanza, Little House on the Prairie, and Murder, She Wrote. Uh, a couple of the movies that he uh, appeared in of note were Norma Ray with Sally Field and The Iger Sanction with Clint Eastwood. And um, when Tim Burton produced the or and directed the biopic Ed Wood in 1994, he ended up playing a film financier um, opposite uh, Johnny Depp's portrayal of Ed Wood. Another veteran actor, uh, Lyle Talbot, who plays an Air Force general. I don't know if he had a name in this or not. Anyway. Uh, Lyle Talbot is best known as Joe Randolph on The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, but was also very active in film in the 1930s. He was also a founding member of the Screen Actors Guild, and no stranger to Ed Wood. He also starred in Wood's first film, Glen or Glenda. And then we also have Tom Keene, uh, playing Colonel Tom Edwards in charge of the Air Force's saucer field operations. Or I guess actually this was the Army, not the Air Force. In any case, it doesn't matter. The military. Uh, and Tom Keene starred in a number of 30s westerns and also starred in uh, some TV productions, namely Sergeant Preston of the Yukon and The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. Then there are the actors that are primarily known for being in this particular movie. Uh, Duke Moore as Police Lieutenant Barber. 
um, who does not uh, provide an excellent example at all of gun safety. We'll get into that a little bit later on. Uh, Paul Marco as Kelton the Cop, who also appeared as the same character in Bride of the Monster and Orgy of the Dead. And Conrad Brooks and Carl Anthony, also playing uniformed policemen. On the alien side of things, um, the alien starship commander Eros was played by radio announcer Dudley Manlove. Um, unfortunate name, but the man did have a very good radio voice. And his underling, uh, Tana, was played by Joanna Lee, who later on ended up becoming a writer for the Flintstones, of all things. The alien commander-in-chief was played by John Breckenridge, also known as Bunny Breckenridge. I will leave you to draw your own conclusions as far as that goes. And, of course, the last... Um, actor will consider here, although he was the first one that we see and the last one that we see in this film, is Criswell, a TV and newspaper psychic, probably best known for his performance in this film, introducing it and closing it with a healthy helping of psychobabble. Um, he definitely wasn't known for his predictions being accurate. Uh, he his hair is quite possibly the weirdest I've ever seen on an actor in the sense that he has a spit curl right in the front that you swear you just want to put a little surfer action figure in. It literally looks like a breaking wave on his head. So, with all that being said, I've babbled enough about the making and casting of the film, so I'm going to go ahead and step into the screening chamber now and subject myself to Plan 9 from Outer Space. And um, due to the uh, time dilation of the screening chamber, while I sit through all 79 minutes of the film, you will only have to listen to the trailer. And then we'll be back to share my thoughts on the movie. the next 90 seconds, while this preview of coming attractions is playing, will all filmgoers with any degree of wit, taste, and intelligence please keep your critical remarks to yourselves, or we'll nail your tongues to the floor. Thank you. It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this theater will not be born on Earth. from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the earth. Plan 9 
from outer space. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive vampira, and Thor Johnson as the walking dead. Turn off your electro gun! No! bounce off their bodies. Rockets, missiles, jets cannot stop their death ship. What earthly power can stop this terror? For a glimpse of things to come, see this blast of screen suspense. For it could be happening right now. Terminating program. And I'm back from the screening chamber, having watched Plan 9 from Outer Space. And I've said it before, and I will say it again. Plan 9 from Outer Space is not the worst movie ever made by a long shot. I would really class this as more along the lines of the best bad movie ever made. Because when you watch it, you are not bored. The plot itself isn't a bad one for the time, uh, with aliens taking what measures they feel necessary to prevent mankind from developing a weapon that would threaten their planet, as well as the entire universe. It actually borrows quite a bit from one of the seminal science fiction films of the period, uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still from 1951, directed by Robert Wise and starring the um, timeless Michael Rennie. In that movie, alien observers also visit to express their concern about the human race's more destructive tendencies. And the idea of aliens reanimating the recently deceased to act as an invasion force was actually used a little bit later on to somewhat better effect in 1959's film Invisible Invaders, directed by Edward L. Kahn and starring John Agar and John Carradine. The real problem with Ed Wood's treatment of the material here is that he doesn't really give you much to go on as to who you're supposed to root for, who the good guys are. Really, the aliens should be, if you think about it. They're just trying to save mankind from themselves. But they're not cast in the best light here at all. Um, they're basically shown as malevolent and scheming and conniving for most of the film, and by the time that we've had the their plot, their ulterior motives revealed to us, it comes it's at the point where we're rooting for the humans, um, the police and Jeff Trent and all of them, when really it's the thick-headed, hot-tempered humans with their guns that are in the wrong in this case. It really does all come across as kind of confusing, and it. The end, again, you really don't know which side you're supposed to root for. And Criswell's speech at the end, which concludes with the words, God help us in the future, tries but fails to clarify these things. But that being said, Plan 9 is a classic example of a movie where the whole is far more than the sum of its parts. Well, we're going to take a look at those parts and see how inadequate they are, and then we're going to see how they come together to really, you know, form a memorable film. Now, the writing and the dialogue, they are just horrendous. I mean, 
it's as though they were written by somebody who was half off their face. And actually, that's probably the truth, because Ed Wood was a known alcoholic who would keep his vodka right next to his typewriter as he wrote his scripts. In this film, it definitely shows. Um, you know, Think about Criswell's opening speech in this movie, where he talks about, uh, well, being interested in the future because that's where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And future events such as these will affect us in the future. And then immediately referring to the future events in the past tense. That's definitely the sign of somebody not in full possession of their faculties. You could probably take that dialogue and instead of reading it like Criswell's, read it in a slurred, drunken voice, and it would make a bizarre kind of sense. Criswell's voiceover narration is also useless to the point of annoyance. It's almost like an early version of the commentary track uh, for the visually impaired that some DVDs have now that will describe the action on screen. In this case, it was totally unnecessary. Although there were some films, um, such as oh, The Creeping Terror comes to mind, where the dialogue track was actually lost and they had to use a narrator. That wasn't necessary in this case. The acting in this film is practically non-existent. That's not to say that the actors didn't try. Uh, we already talked about such talents as Gregory Walcott and Lyle Talbot. You know, they both um, really just didn't have anything to work with here. I mean, they're trying to act, but, you know, kind of like the talents of um, Hayden Christensen and Natalie Portman being wasted in a Star Wars prequel, the writing was just that bad. Uh, Bunny Breckenridge, as the alien leader, can be seen literally holding a copy of the script and reading his lines on the spot to describe what Plan 9 actually was at one point. And yet at another point, he's making grand gestures as though he were on stage at the Globe Theater. Somebody forgot to tell him that Ed Wood wrote this script, not William Shakespeare. Vampyra didn't have a single line of dialogue. She pretty much was required to stand around and look threatening and gothy, and for the most part she succeeds. Tor Johnson's dialogue as Inspector Clay is, very, is barely understandable, but actually whenever he's threatened by the um, other alien resurrected dead uh, that come in and make him one of their own, he does exhibit some pretty good um, facial acting. I have to say I'm impressed by that. Although Criswell's narration would have come in handy whenever Tor had dialogue, because it was just a total mess. And of course, since Bela Lugosi's footage was all shot without sound, we see him, but never hear him. And so we also never hear from his stand-in, Tom Mason, either, since his acting effort pretty much consists of skulking around with Bella's cape draped over the lower half of his face and attempting to look menacing and failing miserably. And while the cinematography is competent, the set design and special effects are, well, let's just say that if you need to pause the film, back up, rewatch the some sequences, and say, seriously, out loud, it's just a sign that you're healthy. Uh, for example, the airplane cockpit. Uh, essentially, it's just a tiny little room 
separated from the rest of the quote-unquote airplane by a plastic shower curtain with um, a clipboard and some type of um, measuring meter on the wall behind them. They didn't even have proper control wheels. They were just basically a plywood round sawn in half just to give the pilot something to hold on to. And the headsets that they wore looked like old 1940s style phone operator headsets where the, the microphone's actually on sitting on the chest of the uh, user. It's just... Yeah, they definitely had more advanced technology in, by the 50s. Then there's the cemetery, or so-called cemetery. Really, those scenes look like they were shot in the basement. Um, I watched uh, the movie on Blu-ray for this podcast, and the high resolution doesn't do that set any favors, because you can actually see the wrinkles on some of the cloth that was used to line that set to make it appear as though it were dark. And that brings us to another issue. The day-for-night photography in this film is just inexcusable. Um, day-for-night shooting is common in a lot of movies, uh, basically because it's a pain in the butt to light a scene at night. So they'll shoot during the day and have certain camera filters to suppress the sunlight. Ed Wood never really got that, so the cemetery scenes are all dark as night. Any other locations, it's anybody's guess as to what time of day it is. It just definitely isn't the night time. Back to the cemetery, the gravestones looked like they were filched from a third grade school play. Uh, you can see the bases on some of them, how they're setting, um, that they're not in the ground as proper gravestones would be. They're wobbly. If you bump into one, it'll wobble around and even fall over. And in some scenes that you can actually see where the gravestones have fallen over and the crew forgot to put them back up for the next take. And they're so bunched together that you, it's, it, it looks more like some type of Halloween play than an actual movie. And then we have the flying saucers. Now, I'm not going to get into so much what they are at this point or what was used for them, but they, regardless of what was used, they were just terrible. Hung on fishing line, and you can hang like an airplane or a model spaceship on fishing line and kind of marionette it to make it look like it's maneuvering. Not the case with these. It looks like that it was hung just by a single strand of fishing line from the top of the dome on the UFO or the flying saucer. And then it's just going to dangle and wobble any way it wants to. And whenever the footage is matted against nighttime footage, or whenever one of them is supposed to fly off at high speed, that's whenever you really see the instability of these special effects. Just, oh, scary bad. And yet, all of these horrible, scary bad elements come together to make a film that is amazingly fun to watch, whether you're alone or in a group. And I really think the reason why is because 
In spite of Edward's incompetence as a writer, a director, film editor, etc., etc., he had an earnestness to him. He had this can-do attitude, even when it was painfully evident that he had no business on a movie set. He basically willed this film into existence. And that's palpable in the final product. If you watch Plan 9 from Outer Space, you're never going to see the fourth wall being broken, except at the beginning and the end with Criswell. It never really winks at the audience or takes itself lightly. The film is trying to make a serious statement, and even though it fails miserably, it manages to fail with style. It fails in a way that's so spectacular that you just can't help but be entertained. Okay, so... Having discussed my thoughts on the film, now we get into the educational part of the program, where we talk about what I learned as I watched Plan 9 from Outer Space. So we'll uh, get our educational music going here. I learned a great deal about how cemeteries in California are set up by watching this movie. For instance, in California, cemeteries are apparently required by law to 1. Own and operate a fog machine 2. Provide mausoleums that are bigger on the inside You never know when a Time Lord's going to cack it 3. Place headstones so close together that most of the bodies must be buried standing up and 4. Provide random teleportation points whereby both a zombie and the person being chased by said zombie pass the same headstones no less than three times in a given chase sequence. Not unlike the background in the Hanna-Barbera cartoon. The Los Angeles Police Department are so good at their job that night turns to day any time one of their cars is on the road. Even though outer space is a vacuum, it still can have atmospheric conditions so severe that they interfere with radio transmissions. This is mentioned at least twice in the movie, and in a scene where the alien saucers are docking with a space station, you can hear this wind. Actually, you hear that wind anytime the saucers are on the screen. When the best example of firearm safety in your film is Tor Johnson, it's not a good sign. Duke Moore, as Lieutenant Barber, actually, he uses his gun to point things out. He scratches his neck with it. He, you know, he could have picked his nose with it, really, at, at one point for, you know, all that he was doing. As I understand it, this was actually a test that the actors did on Ed Wood to see if he'd spot the poor firearm safety and demand another take. Well, he didn't demand another take, he just took the scene as it was. Moving right along, if a goth chick with a 12-inch waist and 4-inch nail stares at you, the correct response is to let out a gurgling scream and then drop over dead, even if she's 10 feet away and hasn't touched you. When Tor Johnson lurches his way out of his character's grave, he casts a shadow on his headstone that looks just like... You know, I'm not going to give this away. 
I'm not going to spoil it for those of you who haven't seen the movie before, or those of you who haven't noticed it before, if you have seen the movie. But let's just say that once you see it and recognize it, you cannot unsee it. When it comes to alien invasions, two's company, three's an army. When your alien uniforms make you look like car hops, and your alien commander looks like a fugitive from a cheap renaissance fair, and is so flaming it's a wonder the set doesn't spontaneously combust, chances are your invasion is not going to end well. Alien civilizations may be far in advance of that of the Earth, but when it comes to women, they still manage to be stuck in the 50s, I saw some prime examples of misogyny on both sides in this film. When your actors can't get on the same page as to how to pronounce the name of a feared super weapon that essentially serves as the movie's MacGuffin, it's time to use a simpler name. I mean, George Lucas was known for dialogue almost as unrecitable as the stuff Ed Wood wrote, but even he finally figured this out. I mean, think about it. Which is easier to say? Solarmanite or Death Star. I'll just leave you to figure that out. When men armed with guns threaten to confiscate your spaceship, apparently the best way to defend it is to grab the nearest piece of said spaceship and try to beat them up with it, setting the spaceship on fire yourself in the process. Uh, kind of the scorched earth policy. If uh, you can't have it, they can't have it. When the director of the film can't get his story straight if the flying saucers he used were A. Paper plates, B. Cadillac hubcaps, or C. UFO model kits bought at a local hobby shop, you know you're watching a quality picture. And by the way, the correct answer here is C. They purchased uh, model kits that were made by the Lindbergh Company around, I think, 1954 they started making them. They were the first plastic sci-fi themed model kit. And they had little jet pods and a transparent cockpit and a little glow-in-the-dark alien pilot. They're very nicely made. I actually have one in my collection built as it was intended to be built. But what Ed Wood basically did was slap it together leave off the jet pods, paint the whole business silver, hang it from fishing line. And I actually have a model of it done up like that as well. But which is more interesting, saying that you used a model kit or saying that you used a paper plate painted silver or a Cadillac hubcap? Again, he was more interested in making a story entertaining than the actual facts. And finally, remember friends, Future events such as these will affect you in the future. And this concludes the educational portion of the podcast. So now the question comes up, where can you find Plan 9 from Outer Space? Where can you view this movie? Well, it's very accessible. You can find a decent DVD on Amazon or eBay. Um, at, you know, the standard DVD prices, you know, 10, 15 bucks, what have you. Um, sometimes you can find them at discount stores for as little as a dollar. As far as which DVD to get, my recommendation actually is the Image Entertainment version. I don't know if it's still in print or not. 
but it also includes an excellent documentary called Flying Saucers Over Hollywood, which talks about the making of the film. Um, the most recent version to come out um, on both DVD and Blu-ray is by Legend Films, which includes both a colorized version of it, which I'm totally against colorization, but it also has um, a fairly well-preserved black-and-white version on the disc as well, and audio commentary by Mike Nelson of MST3K. It's not really necessary. Um, I mean, I got a kick out of it whenever I watched it and listened to the commentary, but really, this movie makes its own gravy. But, if you don't want to spend the money on the DVD or Blu-ray, you can also watch it uh, on the Internet Archive at archive.org. You can download it from there. Or you can also watch it on YouTube, because Plan 9 from Outer Space is in the public domain. So, uh, basically, everything having been discussed, what are my thoughts on this film? Can I recommend this as a cure for what ails you cinematically? The answer is a resounding yes. This is one of the best bad movies ever made. If you have a friend or you are interested in B-movies yourself and don't know where to start, this is a good entry-level film. As such, uh, we will go ahead and submit this into the Abnormal State Theater Film Archive. And that's done. So, next time here at a normal state theater, uh, we'll be considering a documentary film that was sort of spurred on by the UFO craze, um, known as Overlords of the UFO. And um, if all goes well, you'll be listening to that episode in about two weeks. Until that time, this is Dr. R.D. Let me remember my name. Until that time, this is Dr. R.D. Gearhart of Abnormal State Theater signing off. We'll see you next time. Watch out for snakes. This has been a Clockwork Cardiac Production.